All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We are back. Um, I was I was almost going to say we're back at happy hour, but um, we are here for our networking lunch with Gilly Siegel. We have at least a half an hour with her. And um, I just want to go ahead and get started and jump right in because we don't have a lot of time with her and we're already kind of five minutes in and we have enough people. So I'll go ahead and get started. Maybe I'll go, if you all have questions, you can go ahead, I'll continue to monitor the chat um, and people can also ask their questions verbally. But I think what I'm going to do is just get started with the questions that we had during the session that we didn't get to. So the first question was just asking to clarify the TikTok. It said, I think I don't understand the example of the TikTok video. Maybe I just missed something, but can you explain the problem a little more? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. And actually, this would be a fun one to do as a discussion. So anybody that wants to jump in um, and and share, I let me start there. Does any did anybody else get rubbed the wrong way by the idea of a TikTok that um, that I described? If not, I'll share with you some wisdom that can. Yes, yeah, so I have a. I have a yes. Please, I'm, the, the, I would love for this to be sort of an open conversation. Things are more fun when I'm not the only person talking. So please jump in if you want to speak, speak up. But if not, I mean, again, I'm a white person, so to some extent, I'm sort of sharing things that I have learned from others here, and I'm happy to have a, a voice who's experienced to be the one to say this. Um, but here's a lesson that I learned, you know, from my friendship and, and my closeness with my co-author Kim is that oftentimes sort of corporate mainstream culture um, looks down on and denigrates black culture, right? Things that are, uh, you know, African-American vernacular English, uh, we, we call that poor English or broken English. We uh, adopt slang from that, however, subsequently, right? How many of us today might say the word lit? Well, that comes from African-American vernacular English. So what Kim, I have learned from Kim is that sort of the oftentimes black culture is the, she says the architect of cool, but until mainstream culture adopts that, we look down on it, we criticize black communities for it, we treat them differently for engaging in it, we make presumptions about it um, and judge it. And so here we are, this big cosmetics brand adopting from black culture without acknowledging the origins of it, when quite possibly in their own offices, they might have, you know, racialized dress code policies, they might have people who are interviewing who are commenting on things like that. So that's sort of why it's problematic, right? If we don't even recognize that we're co-opting from black culture when otherwise we might be criticizing it and denigrating it. Is that, so for those of you who were rubbed the wrong way by that, is that sort of a reasonable explanation of why that's kind of, we should speak up and say, hey, what are we doing here, right? All them, and yes, all the models were right. So, so we have this representation of black culture by white people. So now, so now these things that we in another context might criticize are fun and acceptable. That's a notion that we have to challenge. Right, thank you for clarifying that, Gilly. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were still learning and still get it wrong. Can you talk a little bit about a time when you've gotten it wrong, particularly in an interpersonal context, like a friendship on your wingspan and how you grew through it? Or if you did it wrong, what would you do differently? Yes, so absolutely. 
Um, and a great example of this is my friendship with Kim, right? So we, we were friends before we started writing together, but obviously since we started writing together and published a book together, we've grown very close. There at, during the writing of our book, there were certainly times when I made assumptions that I understood what a black character would say, think, or do and put it on the cage. And Kim really had to correct me and say, how could you possibly know this, right? Your presumption here is wrong and incorrect. Um, and, and sometimes in ways that are hurtful, right? So what we learned to do over time and the, the fact of working together on this book helped us to do it and we use it now just sort of in our friendship in general was to create, and this is, I'm not the one who originates this of course, but the difference between a safe space and a brave space, right? A safe space I sort of think of as a place where we don't get offended by things, but a brave space is a place where we acknowledge things we don't know um, and that there might be harm associated with those things, but we're gonna talk about them anyway. And, and Kim and I were able to build that space um, because we wanted the best outcome for the book. And we needed to be able to say to one another, I have a question, it's ignorant and it might be hurtful. And we need to add, we need to be able to talk about this um, in order to get the book right, in order to move the book forward. And so we came up with a code word. Um, I won't tell you what the code word was because now we use it when we're gossiping. Um, but you know, it was sort of like a random word that we selected and we would introduce the conversation by saying code word. And then the other one of us um, would know that the next question was coming, was coming from a place of love and concern and friendship. And this is why that notion of building authentic friendships and not check the box friendships is so important because we know each other's hearts, but a way to say like, I'm going to ask something and I understand it might be hurtful and, and we're going to talk about it. Of course, the key to that is me being having an open mind and an open heart and hearing that I don't know what the hell I'm talking about on the other side. Because if I come into the brave space with my knee-jerk defensiveness, um, all that's going to happen is I'm going to offend her and get it wrong. So um, that's how we worked through those things. Uh, I think apology, I'm an apology, I believe in apologizing. I believe it matters, but I also believe it's not enough. Like to me, the more important thing is what comes after the apology. So if I offended Kim by making a presumption about how Lena as a black character would speak, did I continue to make that same presumption or did I listen really hard to her correction and do it differently the next time? So that's a kind of one of my examples. I have two other questions. Um, all this focus on racism and DEI can be really exhausting for people of color. How do we deal with that respectfully? Ooh, so that's a wonderful question. And I'm not sure I'm the person to answer because I'm not a person of color. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I guess what I would say is, you know, at, nobody is obligated to do anything, right? Breaks and no, no is a complete sentence. Um, and we should all feel, especially sort of people who are doing the, the DEI work empowered to say, no, I'm not gonna participate in that conversation. I'm not gonna engage in that interaction. I'm gonna step back because this isn't healthy for me. Um, that's also a place where allies can step in, right? Whether it's online or in person, if you are, you, your radar should be attuned to seeing the people of color around you be exhausted about it and step in at that moment in time, right? If I'm seeing, um, uh, a colleague of mine have, for example, let's go back to the TikTok, right? If that were happening in my agency and I were watching uh, a black woman colleague argue that argument by herself, um, I can step in and, and join that discussion or 
and help, right? And you have to do that thoughtfully and sensitively, right? Because it's really important not to speak over communities of color as an ally. And that is something that we do and get wrong a lot is like, I wanna be a good ally. I'm gonna jump in and lead this charge. It's really not my place to lead the charge, but I can step in and support and I can um, take that on. But there's no, I mean, self-care sometimes means saying no and stepping back from it. Got it. And there's no one, I think you were gonna say something like there's no, one size fits all, no <laughs> right way or something like that. Yeah, of course, there's no one size fits all. So I am white presenting, this is the question, and I find that personally and for other white people, the shame of realizing, understanding white supremacy can be a big roadblock to doing this work. However, the shame is not an excuse to not do the work because as you say, fellow humans are doing, are caring, while I risk only are dying. Fellow humans are dying while I risk only discomfort. Do you have any idea on tools to share about how we deal with shame so white people can get to the work? That's also a really great question. I, I'm, I try to approach this empathetically because I, I definitely understand that, but I don't, it's not, it's not helpful to me to talk about shame or being ashamed other than to acknowledge, right? To me, it's embarrassing that I didn't know these things when I did, but also dwelling in, the, I mean, we start where we are. Like that's, that's the wisdom that I've got, right? We start where we are and um, it's not a personal slight. I think we take these things very, very personally. And for me, it's helpful to like, take a step back, set my ego aside and say, here are fellow human beings whom I love telling me something is hurting them. I need to start from how they feel about it and not how I feel about it. Um, I, I don't know. I try very hard not to like talk about the shame, the shame element. Cause I just, it doesn't have really help any people grow. I think it makes people more defensive. So um, I try to sort of focus external to myself on what's the impact and not the intent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like that. Like here's a fellow human being and potentially someone who I really care about telling me that I've been hurtful and like applying that same, like you would with any other relationship with anyone else that you care about, if that person came to you and said something like that, you would stop, you would reflect, you would listen because that's not your intent. And so having that same lens with these kinds of conversations is really important. I really like that. It's coming from a place of love. Yeah. And that's what's missing from a lot of this love, you know? I really love that construction of, I'm going to think on this a lot, constructing it as a relationship, right? Just because the person is not, a, you know, sort of an intimate of ours doesn't mean we don't have a relationship with them. We're all interconnected if we're interacting. I really love that. I'm going to, I'm going to think on that a lot, Tanisha. All right. We're in a, we're, we're developing a relationship here. Um, <laughs> so let's, so I wanted to go back to, you touched on this a little bit and I think it, I asked this question as well, but I wanted to make sure that I at least got it in. And then that after this, I'll be done with the questions from the session. If people want to ask their questions here, we have about 15 minutes left. But how do you use the ally accomplice framework in your legal work? How does that differ to you from just doing legal work, specifically legal aid work? Uh, also a great question. One, I'm not totally qualified to answer. I can answer the first part of it, but not the second, because I don't do a ton of legal aid work. Um, but I do think ally and accomplice work uh, affect my day job. And here's a, a concrete example um, that's still confidential. So I'll share it with you all because now we have a relationship, but don't share this beyond that. Um, one of the things that I do deals with that I work in the entertainment space as an advertising agency. Um, 
and we deal with influencers. And for those of you that don't live your lives super online like I do, these are basically um, people who have large social media followings um, who take on brand related work. They get take on sponsored work, get paid to promote products online. Um, many of the smaller but more influential creators um, are individuals. They're, they're not, you know, they don't have a big agent. They don't have a big manager. They're individuals who started doing this work for the love of it and have become successful. And the legal documentation associated with signing a sponsorship deal is, is long. It's intimidating. It's legally is as much as we try not to write legally as we all know we fall back into it. So there's currently an initiative that a number of advertising agencies are undertaking to try to rewrite our contracts to make them more accessible to people who don't have legal backgrounds and who don't have access to agents, managers, or lawyers that they can afford to pay for every, you know, thousand dollar sponsorship that they're taking on. Um, and I like that's a place where I think thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's sort of the equity um, slice of the pie. Uh, all agencies are highly protective. It's our proprietary information. Those contracts are proprietary information. Can I go to my management and say to them, I'm advocating that we disclose some proprietary information in order to join an effort to level the playing field for creators who are smaller and have access to fewer legal resources so that they can understand the contracts they're signing into and feel good about them. Um, so that's something that I can do in my, and I'm doing in my day job is to advocate that we open the barn doors a little bit and share some of our information in order to work together as an industry to be more accessible. On the legal aid side, since that is not my, my particular field, I will, if there's anyone who wants to share experiences that they have that they think are effective in bringing this into the legal aid world, I'm happy to cede the floor. Otherwise, more questions. Do we have questions in the chat you want to ask? We can field some of those. Anyone want to share an experience that they've had over the course of this um, conference that made them think really hard about something they do or don't do? I have a question in the chat. Uh, if I could change one or two laws or structures to advance race equity, what would I change? It's a hard question. I think I would start with the criminal justice system, right? I think uh, <clears throat> in equity in the criminal justice system and access to legal representation, as well as the private for-profit prison corporation system. Those are, actually, I would start with private for-profit prison, right? I don't think we need a prison industry in this country. Um, so that's where I would start. How about you guys? This is definitely what you guys do on a daily basis. What do you think the laws are that we need to change? I'm happy to read off chat comments also. My priority has felt like residential segregation. Mm. Housing. Anybody else? 
Other questions that we have? There's one other question in the chat, Gilly. Um, thank you so much, Gilly. I'm curious about how you got into writing for young people and what that journey has been like. <laughs> yes, happy to answer this question. Um, I've always been a writer. I was that kid who was sitting in the back of math class, like flipping to the back of her notebook, scribbling stories. I don't advocate that when I talk to people's children now, but I will cop to have been that kid. Um, so I was always, you know, I've, I've always been a writer and a storyteller. <clears throat> I come from a really solidly middle-class background. My parents were small business owners and, um, you know, financial stability is incredibly important for me because we weren't always financially stable growing up. So I don't think I perceived writing to be like a solid day job and it doesn't come with health insurance. So I am too risk averse <laughs> to be a full-time writer. And I left it for a long time because I thought I needed like a really stable day job. And I like, I like reading and writing and I like the law. So I went into the law. Um, but I, you know, I could never really set aside the storytelling thing. And I'd been working at my big law firm, which was a wonderful place, but about a year into it, I also realized that big law firm life wasn't going to make me personally happy in the long term. And I started getting back into writing. And around the same time is when the Twilight franchise became a big hit. And I'm not going to put everyone has, a, I call it your gateway YA. Those of us who are adults who read a lot of young adult literature, everyone has a gateway YA. I'm not ashamed to admit that Twilight was mine. I'm also not ashamed to admit that my tastes have grown since then. Um, but I, I really sort of started getting into YA then and reading what's available. And in all honesty, I read a lot of boring and serious contracts for my day job. And so when I'm reading for pleasure, I wanna escape. And I find young adult literature to be some of the most exciting and risk-taking literature that's being created today. Young adults really on the forefront of um, efforts to create space for stories written by creators from particular identities as opposed to sort of, you know, the white narrative all the time. And I fell in love with YA. And when I started writing again, that was kind of where my voice came out. And it's really fun to write for young people. They get really excited and interested by things. They get really invested in the things that they love. Um, I had the opportunity to, before COVID, I was touring the country, um, visiting high schools, talking about the book with Kim. And to me, hope looks like the future. And I don't say that to absolve myself or our generation of doing the work and doing better than we're doing right now. But I've found the kids that I've interacted with to be so desirous of change and so invested in um they talk about these things more than we did when I was young. They are more aware. They are more educated. So now I continue to write for young adults because I think they're great. I also think they're part of this conversation in a way that like so sometimes as adults, we talk to kids instead of with them. And I fall prey to this, of course, myself. But um, they are part of what's happening in the world today. You know, if you look at the protests of last summer, uh, there were a lot of young people who were the leaders of those protests. Uh, our book starts with an incident where there's a shooting at a high school football game. I can't count on two hands the number of high schools that we toured where afterwards or during our presentation, a student would come up to us and say, did you base this on my school? Because it happened here. So um, I like writing for young kids, particularly about social justice, because I think they're part of these conversations and sometimes get overlooked. And what's it like? It's fun. It's my creative outlet. Um, I can't not write. Who knows if I'll always publish, but I certainly will always write. Yeah, I like how you, you know, you're basically speaking to you can have multiple, you know, you can do multiple things, you know. 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's also the way that I am fulfilled as a person, right? So I, I like being a lawyer and I love my company. I love my job. It's a really wonderful place to work. Um, alone, it's not enough for me to feel whole. So, you know, I need my creative side as well. And I need the writing side. And I'm very fortunate that my day job is extremely supportive of my writing career also. So that's very nice. Other questions? Did I get it all? We have about six minutes left. So does anyone have anything else that they want to add or a question or a comment? Gilly's information is included on the conference website. So as I say to everyone, um, don't let this be the last encounter. Um, invite her to your programs, follow up, um, send her an email, continue the conversation because this isn't supposed to be a one-shot deal, you know, long-term sustainable change means that we have to keep on talking about it. We have to keep doing it, keep on practicing. And I have a lot to learn too. I really, I mean, I genuinely feel that way. This is why I sort of am very careful never to anoint myself as the, you know, I think sometimes people want to see me like as the ally resource center and I'm, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a member. I'm, I'm at that resource center too. So I'd love to learn from you guys. Uh, do I have any book recommendations? for talking to young kids about racism. So absolutely, now, now you've gotten me started. I love book recommendations. I'd say it depends on the age group that you're talking about. Um, the number one that I would suggest is uh, Stamped. It is the young adult version of Stamped from the Beginning uh, by Ibram Kendi. And it's co-authored with probably the most preeminent young adult novelist, um, Jason Reynolds. I can't recommend Stamped enough. Um, uh, this is my America. It's actually did by Kim Johnson is it's fiction, but it deals with the criminal justice system. And I think that's an extraordinary way. I think fiction is a great entree into this as well. Um, books by Nick Stone. These are all young adult at this point. Um, uh, Nick Stone's book, Dear Martin and Dear Justice, are also both about systemic racism and the criminal justice system. Uh, Good, Get Into Good Trouble by Lisa Abrams. I can put all of these into an email later and, um, and maybe Tanisha can share it out. Uh, is more young adult oriented as well. Uh, not young adult, middle grade oriented. So middle grade would kind of be the middle school years. Um, there's also a really good book. It's not strictly about anti-racism. Uh, but I think it's actually one of the most critical books that I share with kids today. Uh, it's called True or False. It's um, written by a former CIA analyst for young adults, and it's about recognizing misinformation online. And I, I love, I'm very online, I live a very online life, and so do the kids that I know and love and talk to. Um, I think being online is a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it's brought about an incredible democratization of access. And with fewer gatekeepers, we're hearing from voices that we have never heard before. But of course, from the flip side of that is that there are some bad actors who manipulate the information available online. Um, and so uh, it's called true or false. And I think helping or give our kids an understanding of how to evaluate the information that they're being presented online is a critical skill set for them for the future. Thank you. I think one of the things that you've talked about as well is the um, relationships. That's something that I hear you talking about a lot, this relationship with Kim. Um, you know, it's a cross-racial relationship and it sounds like that's been one of the more transformative things in your life and you talk about learning from her and sharing and so I think just that sticks out to me and the power of having these cross-racial relationships that are built on trust 
that are built on respect and having those hard conversations and having someone say, you know, ooh, that, that was harmful and talking through that. And I think that's one of the things that's missing is these authentic real relationships where people can have real conversation about hard topics and become friends and be friends and partner together and work together. Um, that's something that I think is, all, is also missing that we need to really, we overlook that, the power of these interpersonal individual relationships. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I mean, truly it comes from, it's about coming from a place of love and genuine care and understanding. And, you know, we always say we were friends first. We lived life together. We experienced, you know, we leaned on one another when we were breaking up with romantic partners. We, uh, we, we saw sort of different things happening in the world and leaned on one another through that. And those, that made us genuine friends and opened up the conversations that we needed to have that were the more challenging conversations about race and racism. And that's why I don't know who said it, but whoever it is, I thank you and I appreciate you very much. And this is my takeaway from the conference is changing the way I talk about these friendships to make sure that what I'm emphasizing is genuine friendships and not, you know, check the box friendships or, or saying like, I, I did lunch with someone at work this week. Therefore, I now have, you know, a friend who's from a different identity than my own, because the gen the authenticity of it is, I mean, it's the, the core of it. Right. Yeah. It's like the checkbox of like, oh, I have a black friend. You know, you start talking about race, like, oh, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite. Like anytime you're tempted to say that I can't, I'm not racist or, or any of it. Right. Um, I'm not expressing anti-Asian sentiment because I have a, an, an Asian friend. I'm not being anti-Semitic because I have a Jewish friend um, or a Jewish, God forbid, accountant. Right. So like the, anytime you're tempted to say that, I'm always like, mm, let me check myself and think really hard about what I'm about to say because it's probably offensive. Um, someone just wanted to follow up and say following up with what Dan said and its relationship to relationships. Residential segregation limits the emergence of authentic relationships, neighbors, work, friendships that are necessary to build a rich, healthy, diverse community profoundly true, right? Profoundly true. And I'd add into that the school systems, right? Uh, and, and sort of in particular, the notion of segregated school systems. If your school is predominantly white, what friends do your kids have? Um, and that's, of course, also in many places in America, a function of um, residential segregation as well. Thank you so much um, for being with us today. We appreciate you sticking around for this networking lunch session. And um, again, like I said, let's not make this be the last conversation that we have around this topic and with Gilly. Um, she's available to talk more with folks, to come to your programs, to lead reading book groups. I was thinking also when you were talking, it'd be quite interesting to have like, like a fireside chat or some sort of dy dynamic. Sorry, my house is getting a little bubbly now. People are starting to wake up and walk around and do things <laughs> and talk and all those other things, all of the above. They try to hold it together. They're, 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 get, they're almost there. But um, so I, I was thinking of how it would look like for you to have like this dynamic conversation between, you know, a dynamic conversation between Gil Gilly and Kim and just thinking about like how to have that relationship come to life a little bit through a creative process. So that's something that I was thinking about how we can make that happen. Um, Kim but and I love to talk together. And by the way, it's really fun to do um, multi-generational groups about this, right? Especially because you can use our books, which are for young adults as the center talking point. Like our second book that's coming out next also has a black character and a Jewish character. So I'm really hoping for anyone who has like relationships with faith-based organizations that wants to do sort of cross-cultural um, youth group type activities, love to join those.
All right, folks, I think our time is here. Um, and Wayona says, I'm not dying with you has been downloaded. Can't wait to listen yeah, and, and share the book with my young people. So awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you, everybody. Please keep in touch. Okay. Everyone have a wonderful afternoon. We'll see you um, at the afternoon sessions. Okay. Bye-bye.